Hello and welcome to the Brand Explorer podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Belling, coming to you from Munich. These interviews explore the trails and passes people have taken to build successful brands in the cycling community. Listen to their lessons from their own personal experience. Enjoy the ride. Attention. This is a very special extra-large history episode by length and insights on how mountain biking started in the UK in the 90s. On September 2nd, Chips Chippendale, founding editor of Single Track World, announced to take a step back from the day-to-day -day running of the Single Track Empire after 20 years. He will not retire. Chips will concentrate purely on the print magazine, his first love. Chips is changing money for more time to ride, to read, to travel, and start a new bucket list with further plans in the pipeline. Enjoy this very special chat with a friend and a beer. We talk about what lucky moments brought Chips into the mountain bike magazine business, how long it took to get rid of the 10,000 copies of single track issue number one, and why British downhillers like Steve Peat, Rob Warner, and Danny Hart have been dominating the downhill sport for decades, with the UK only having two chairlifts that carry bikes at all. Enjoy the ride. Tips. So, uh, even so, we just uh, saw each other and had some good chats uh, at Eurobike and briefly at, at the IAA. How, how are you? Uh, very good. Uh, randomly, uh, since I last spoke to you, I uh, got back to the UK last, um, I don't know, maybe a week, nearly a week ago. And then today I had a, a, a positive COVID test. No way. Where, where they said, right, you have to have to uh, self-isolate. Uh, initially it was uh, for 10 days and then they were like, well, it's eight days since you, uh, uh, so 10 days, including when you took the test. And then they went, uh, uh, because I had a cold last week, they said, well, that was probably it. So you've only got three days. So I do have to spend the weekend indoors. So hopefully I haven't given you any, uh, you know, logies. Wow, so th this is uh, definitely a premiere. Never, <clears throat> you know, I, my, my son had COVID and I didn't get it, but now doing an, an interview with uh, a positive person. I, I won't know. touch the screen, don't worry. Yeah, let, let's, let's no, stay on I won't lick, lick the microphone. <laughs> I'll have another, another. Uh... <laughs> I, apart from that, I'm uh, I'm great. Yes, uh, the the weather is very nice and uh, sort of late late summer autumnal. The trees are starting to turn. Trails are still dry. Okay, so, so yeah, it's looking good. So um, just a couple of weeks ago, you made an announcement on uh, on Facebook that. Um, You're going to do a bigger change that you're going to step down from your daily routine as uh, editor of uh, single track magazine. Yes. Um, I've been uh, doing single track magazine for 20 years now. We had our 20th anniversary this April. Uh, and then before that, I, I worked for, for other magazines as well for, uh, since 1994. Uh, I think this is my, 
This is now my 30th year in the bike industry. So I've been around a while. As far as I know, I think I'm the longest running mountain bike magazine editor in the world. Um, okay. Possibly English language, uh, I'll qualify that with, because I'm not sure if, uh, I don't know, Mike from O2 Bikers in Belgium might uh, might have the crown or uh, Christoph Jobbik from... Uh, uh, maybe, although he reckons not, but, uh, yeah. How, about, been... how will you, who will you be from uh, Spain? Oh, okay. Yes. I'm, you know, I did, I'm not sure. Um, but certainly English language, I seem to have yeah. uh, outlasted just about everyone. Uh, and, and I've been doing it for the same magazine for 20 years. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I kind of fancied a bit of a change. I mean, I'm not, it's not that much of a dramatic change in terms of, uh, the, the work, um, that most people will see because I'm still editing single track magazine. I'm still writing the editorial and commissioning features. So in terms of what people see in the, in the print magazine, there's not too much difference. But in terms of what I do in sort of my day-to-day life, I've sort of removed myself from the day-to-day running of, of the magazine. Uh, I'm still so what does it mean? You, you don't have to get up early anymore? You can no, that's in. right, yeah. I, I, I can sleep in. I don't have to uh, go into the office, uh, empty the bins, clean the coffee machine, uh, things like that I used to do. Uh, obviously, we've – we're the single track magazine has only just started returning slowly to a normal office based life. And even then the staff are only all in on a Wednesday and then there are, there's someone in every day, but, but, um, everyone's not, not in all the time. Um, but I've sort of removed, removed myself from the, uh, doing a lot of the online stuff, which, uh, to be fair moves, far too quickly for me these days you know we we started in the uh in the black and white days of the uh almost literally black and white days of the uh bike in the street and stories were sort of slow forming the the idea of products being launched globally to the second around the you know around the world with the with a massive sort of uh product information blast from uh, manufacturers and, and media at the same time that didn't really happen it was it was depended on when your print magazine was coming out and as a as a young mountain biker in the uk you know we would look at mountain bike action magazine mbuk magazine and we would see stories of things that probably happened about about uh you know three months ago and of products that we wouldn't see physically for another year. Right. Um, but, but we would, we would get that information. We would obviously read, read the stories, read the magazines cover to cover, including all the adverts and then read them backwards because it was another three weeks till the next issue came out. Um, and that world obviously moves so much faster now. And you, it's, it's a full-time job just to be, um, to keep up with who's doing what, the, the what new products are appearing, what sneaky peak products are appearing on sponsored riders' bikes, and and that kind of thing, which is is such a full time job that I I 
don't feel qualified to do that kind of stuff anymore because it's just moving so quickly and there are younger keener people to do that for you know for single track and for for all the other magazines so i um so my my role hasn't really <clears throat> changed in terms of what people will see in the magazine and in fact i'll probably now have more time to write longer features and to to go places and, and do things which being sort of tied to a, a daily office routine had meant that it, it was very hard to get away to to uh to you know cover those corners of the the world that i i wanted to look at so if i hear you right then then the, the this, this massive increase in uh, speed information or information that the that the speed the speed that the information is turned around has has pushed you to to this decision no not um not necess not completely i think that that is part of it just the the effort to keep up with right everything that's that's new is it is a full-time job for people um but also from from my point of view like we you and i have seen products develop incrementally over 20 30 years right and uh 20 years ago uh, a product would come out and it would be 50 better than the, the last one it would be half the weight or it would be you know twice as good And as the world has moved on, products the the gap between products has has narrowed. The way um, Keith Bontrager was saying that that uh, we're cutting finer and finer slices of the pie. So initially, right. it was easy to make a, a bike that was twice as good as the one that came before it because bikes weren't great in in the early days. They they were good and they they gave you some great adventures, great stories, and everyone was on the same bike, so it didn't matter. And then the, the sort of things ramped up and products got better and better and better. But the the amount of effort technology that goes into making a product better now is it's harder and harder and your benefits are smaller and smaller. Okay, yeah, no, that makes totally sense. And... Uh, and um speaks to, to to the speed uh point you made i want i want to switch uh, uh gears and 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 be curious so you know it's a it's a bigger change so like uh you know going into this i i expect you didn't make this just uh overnight to make this change did you have something like a bucket list you looked at and say okay i've done all this and this and this and this and now it's time for something new or what else went into the process of this change um there's there's certainly a uh uh a midlife crisis aspect of of looking at looking at the world and going right um i'm 53 now in you know 10 years time i'll be 63 will i still want to do rad mountain bike adventures hopefully yes um you know we we both are uh, young fit virile mountain bikers and we know that in the in the near future unless something goes terribly wrong we should be fit and healthy and looking forward to enjoying ourselves you know into our into our old age um but if you think okay well maybe by the time i get to 
65, I, I may want to slow down a bit. I may not want to do big rock drop-offs and things. So, Are you still doing this today? Are you still dropping no, off? I'm, I'm rolling off them, you know, <laughs> having checked, checked the landing first. Um, to, to be fair, I'm, I'm no worse a rider than I, than I was when I was 20. I'm, uh, I was never that, uh, that good at dropping off things. But uh, lo looking at sort of the future, you go, well, okay, if I've got 10 years of rad mountain biking in me, in my legs and, and joints, then, you know, where, when am I, where's my list and when am I going to do it? So you, well, it's been 10 years since I went to Whistler. It's been, you know, I'd love to go back to Japan. I'd like to go and spend more time in Finale. Okay. How about the Pyrenees? How about the Spanish mountains, you know, Sierra Nevada and stuff. Okay. That's already five. Uh, and then there's, I've not really explored Scotland or the Lake District well, as well as I wanted to, or, or Wales. Um, there's, there was a lot of places that deserve uh, exploring. And so you go, well, okay, if I've got 10 years to do my bucket list, well, what am I doing next summer? You know, wh which one of those am I going to do? And if I put it off for another year, then that's nine. So yeah, at some point you go, well, what do I want to achieve? I, I've obviously achieved I've edited a mountain bike magazine, which, which I love. And, and even looking back at through old issues, um, makes me really proud of what, what we've achieved, especially as a sort of small independent magazine. We've, right. we've always been self-published and we've done pretty well in the face of some pretty well-funded, um, you know, other peers out there. Uh, and so, so I, I'm very proud of, of what I've done. And I, I now think, well, you know, maybe I can do a little less of that and a bit more of, of, of kind of the fun stuff. That so this is, this is awesome that you share this, uh, this point of view, because that that's something that you and I now have alike, you know, I already turned 55, but turning the perspective, you know, as you just said, you know, looking at it from 63 to now, right at these 10 years, um, that's why I will, uh, actually go to Lake Garda in, uh, in a couple of weeks hmm. and ride term also. And, uh, and, uh, and to the funny point is that instead of what I said, you know, you didn't have a bucket list that you checked off, but it sounds more like you, you started a bucket list for the next 10 years. So, um, great, great, great thinking, very motivated. I'll start one too. Okay. Yes. And it's, you know, you don't want to accidentally end up being sort of, um, uh, older and, and and then going, Oh wait, what, what was I doing, you know, 10 years ago? Oh, I was doing the same as I'm doing now, right. which is all great. But at some point, um, you know, it, you either accept that that's that you're quite happy with that. Uh, or you think, well, how much, how much money do I need to, to live on? Do I have enough stuff? I think most people I know have enough stuff. I, I definitely have enough stuff. I've got, boxes of stuff behind me i i moved looks house. like you got a lot of boxes there what's going on there uh we moved house at the end of uh june so three months ago i guess uh from a very large old drafty cold but cool old farmhouse that we used to live in and we moved to a very small uh two-bedroom terraced house across town 
okay. uh, which uh, which is it is great. It it costs uh, comparatively nothing to heat and uh, and it's it's very comfortable. But currently, it's it's full of stuff. But moving from a a big house to a small house does make you appreciate just how much junk you have and you know do you do you really need all of it uh yes <laughs> so do you, did you make a you had to make a plan already on how to get rid of all that stuff you don't need or how is that process running to clean we, up? uh we certainly just uh we we gave away a lot of stuff i had a i dug out a lot of old cycling gear that i had you know as as you'll know you just kind of accumulate cycling gear whether you realize it or not and it's only when you go and open the, the cupboard and realize you've got 15 pairs of cycling shoes that you think you think oh maybe i've maybe i do have too many uh, pairs of shoes so i uh organized uh, a bike ride with some friends that ended up back at the house and i'd uh we'd cleared one room out so i just laid out all this stuff on the floor and said right here are some size 43 shoes here are some 26 inch tires and 29 inch tires here's a couple of bike bags here's some you know handlebars and grips help yourself and so so they all help themselves and then uh few other people then, huh? yeah they they helped me and then eventually i was left with a, a a pile of slightly less desirable bits and pieces you know 26 inch tires or um <laughs> handlebars that that look like any other handlebars so I, did, we did have you a, tell them, well you can have this nice piece if you take this tire i i did do that with some cycling jerseys it was a bit like okay if you want this retro team richie jersey you have to you have to have five other jerseys with it as well just <laughs> you know and what you do with them go and give them away to somebody um and then we have a cycling charity uh, just down the road where they they rebuild bikes and they sell them for for charity so i turn up like do you uh do you want some tires? They're like, yes, we want some tires. So I walked in this enormous pile of tires. How about shoes? Yeah, we want shoes. Okay, well, here's a big pile of shoes, and they were they were delighted. So, and this is this is great. This is great. <laughs> lot, lots of stuff we have uh, in common to to share on this one. You mentioned Keith, Keith Keith Bontrager. Have you, have you yes. talked to him lately? I haven't spoken to Keith in the last couple of years. Oh, okay. Uh, I I usually try and make a point of popping in to see him when I go to the Sea Otter, uh, and and Santa Cruz has been somewhere that I've been uh, I've visited. I think every year since about 1992, uh, and okay. so I always try to to pop in and and do a round of all of my Santa Cruz friends, and and if I have a bit more time, I go up to Northern California and go and do the Northern California, the the sort of North Bay friends as well. Go and see uh, people like Ross Schaefer um, and Keith and and. Uh, Paul from Rock Lobster and, uh, you know, pop nice. in to see, uh, nice. all those, those people who are all still in the area, all still riding bikes and all, uh, still legends in their, uh, in their own worlds. In their own world. Yeah. Um, so, Hey, uh, 20 years of magazine, you know, you've seen everything you've done everything. And so I was thinking to, to, to spice this conversation up by throwing some, uh, some uh, bullet points and see what what uh, 
what shakes this up in, in, in your memories. <laughs> okay. Um, so for instance, um, South of France, golf course, motocross bike. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. South of France, this would be a uh, Scott G0 launch in the South of France, which uh, Peter Denk was there, Tim Flukes, you were there. Um, you're, you're lucky you've sprung this on me because I can find the pictures. Uh, and that's, uh, you see, I've, I've, always, I've always taken photos since I was at school, just always had a camera around, and, and you think... Oh well, you know why do I need a photo of of this this occasion where I've got three friends in a room? But you you never know. You may be looking back in twenty years' time and going, "Wow, those three friends! Though you know they've not all been in the same room since then." Look right. at here's this great photo. Uh, so that was a launch of of Scott launched their G zero bike, and there was me and. Uh, I can't remember if there was another English journalist there, but it seemed to be mostly European journalists and most people are driven. And because it was Scott and Scott has a great heritage of motocross, uh, protective wear and, and stuff. It, I didn't really get the memo, but it, it, it was implied <laughs> that you should, you know, if you've got a motocross bike, turn out, bring a motocross bike because there'll be some bike riding going on. And, so I flew in, didn't know, I'd got my cycling gear and, and a camera and it was like, okay, here's the G zero and we're going to go for a bike ride right now. We've still got a day and a half. Let's go motocross riding. And I was like, well, I haven't got a motocross bike and Peter Dank had a spare one. And there was me and I think Chris from one of the German magazines who had never really ridden motocross bikes off road before. Right. I'd, I'd ridden around a car park a few times and that was it. So, uh, so Peter led me and Chris on a, uh, on a bike ride and, uh, it was, it was pretty fun. Uh, and he tried to keep it reasonably simple, but you know, if you've ever taken a, a novice mountain biker out, what you think is, is an easy descent or what you think is an easy climb right. is terrifying to a newcomer. So yeah, especially uh, especially with a group of uh, the Scott guys who've all been like semi pro motocross yeah. or bike riders. So so uh, they quickly zoomed off, uh, leaving me and and Peter on his spare bike and Chris uh, to to ride around. And we we were going up a a dry riverbed, which uh, probably is is very easy if you're an experienced motocross rider but but uh, i found it a bit a bit hard and i did the classic thing of getting in a bit over my head and uh leaning back pulling the throttle by accident which obviously made the bike speed up so i panicked pulled the clutch in which then made the motor race and then realized what I'd done. So I let go of the clutch by which time the engine was racing and I took off, um, at a great rate, launched myself up this riverbed and, and then started flying probably, I don't know how high I was, but I was looking down on bushes <laughs> and, uh, in a Superman position and thinking this is really going to hurt. And luckily I'd borrowed all of the Scott protective gear I could before the ride. So I had boots and helmets and pads and everything. Yeah. And I, I managed to land in a heap and was fine. And Peter ran up and, uh, the engine was racing. He kind of cut that and 
and I was all right. Dusted myself off and, uh, and we carried on. And then, then the next day, uh, the rear axle of his bike snapped. So I had, I don't know if that was anything to do with me. I'm sure it was just a coincidence, but well, uh, I need to check in with him <laughs> and see what, he, how he remembers that story. From my side, I only remember that, uh, we started to ride on a old golf course mm-hmm. that wasn't active anymore. And that was uh, hilarious. But speaking about launches, right. I mean, like, uh, over the years, as you said, you know, in the past when there was like monthly reviews and, uh, there was like the launch cycles of trade shows and everything, you know, launches were, um, in numbers predictable. Yeah. And to your point of speed today, they're like all over the place and, uh, they fly around, but give me your highlights. Thinking back of like, what were for you great product launches? Um, in terms of, uh, well, I, I can only think of ones that go, went a bit wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, start, let's, let's start with the one that, that, uh, there, there was a, different. there was a GT launch in Corsica and okay. me and Brent Richards, uh, went down there and we'd, we'd read the sort of front page of the instructions, but not the rest of it. So we'd read that, you know, <laughs> seems to be a red line, right? I mean, like, you know, like, uh, Make it, you know, if you're going to do stuff, put it in big writing. I don't <laughs> mind if it's red underlined, but we, uh, we flew down and we'd read the, you know, it, the launch is going to be on a boat. It's going to Corsica. So we <laughs> turned up, we parked up and, uh, we had four hours until the, till the, time of the launch so we went to a restaurant had some lunch and some nice mool and a couple of beers and then we went looking for this little boat that we were supposed to be on which turned out to be a giant um overnight ferry that went to corsica it was a a 12-hour sailing i think and we eventually sort of wandered around and found a ticket office that knew what was going on. And they were like, you're here quick, go run up the gangplank quick. You you know, the meeting started an hour ago. We're like, what? Oh, so we wandered up and we found an empty meeting room with a, with a sort of bike under a blanket and uh, wandered around and and we met, uh, met people in the bar. And apparently we'd we'd missed the, the big unveiling of the, uh, of the new Mm. bike. And so we, uh, we proceeded to just, uh, you know, hang out and go to, went to Corsica overnight, rode bikes the next day, took some photos, got back on the ferry, had an overnight ferry, uh, had a few beers on the ferry. And (laughs) instead of waking up in Marseille, we woke up in Toulon, which is about 50 kilometers down the road. And it turns out that the French dockers were having a strike and weren't letting anyone into Marseille. So we then got chucked off the boat and had to stand there in the sort of blinding sunlight, trying to uh, wait for the a bus that then took us to uh, to the ferry port, where it turns out our car, our rental car, was in the ferry port, and the dockers had barricaded themselves inside and were welding all the gates shut. And we we uh, we tried asking the official um, sort of port authority uh if we could get in and they're like no you can't get in so we had to jump over a fence into the uh, back of the port and then found our car and drove past uh the striking dockers and things on fire um through the one remaining gate that hadn't been welded shut 
So, but you made it home. We, like. we made it home. It was it was fine. <laughs> good. All, all good. I'm sure it was great, bike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Speaking about Brand Richards, he's a, he's a, a character. Um, he, is, he definitely yes. was was always uh, good for a, a laugh and a joke at any of the launches. He's he's the first person that I really met in my official capacity in the bike industry. I'd really, uh, yeah. I um, I was a bike messenger in London, and I had written to a couple of bike companies to see if they needed any writing doing, and you know I had sort of grand plans that I could write brochures and and things. And it turns out that. It would, you know, this bike industry was small back then, and there wasn't really a need for that kind of stuff. But a, a company called NTI, who imported was the original Rockshocks importer in the UK, um, got back in touch and said, "Well, we need someone to pack boxes. How about that?" So I turned up and packed boxes, uh, and answered the phone. And at, at that point, there was the guy who owned the company, Simon, and me. And so I was the first employee and the phone rang. I'm like, hello, NTI, can I help you? And this voice went, who are you? Who are you? What's your, who are you? You're not Simon. Who are you? I was like, oh, hello, I'm Chips. I'm new. Oh, where's Brand? Put Simon on. Oh, oh, oh okay. Yes. Oh, my. So, this, is, so that, this is so Brand. This is so that was Brand. And even to this day, I know that if I, um, if I have a phone call from Brand, he will know that his name comes up on my phone. So he doesn't need to introduce himself. Right. He doesn't need to say, Hey, it's Brant. So I'll just get this phone call and go, hi, uh, you know, hello, Brant. And he goes, who imports onza grips? And I'll go, Oh, it's this company. Right. And he's like, cheers. And then he hangs up because he knows <laughs> that he doesn't have to say goodbye. How, you know, take care or anything because it's, I have served my purpose. <laughs> yeah. He definitely is uh, one of the straightest shooters on on your island there yes always always good <laughs> a couple of highlights with him were one that he where he after he heard the rumor that when i was at rock shocks that there might be a a double bridge uh fork he photoshopped the <laughs> double bridge and and made it like uh that he already saw it and, and knew it and made the big story up wow and and the other one was that uh Speaking of GT, that he uh, showed up at the GT launch, and uh, of course, as you remember, like they always wanted to have you in their brand gear, right? And every morning, like you know, the journalists show up and nicely dressed in GT gear, except a friend who just you know came in a spanking new Trek outfit that he just got <laughs> from the launch before. So, so much to Brand Richards. Speaking about, about people, like, you know, like, uh, um, what, what people and brands, uh, after all these years, you know, um, did you feel emotionally attached to for certain stories? I guess the, the brands that, and the people that were, were around when I was starting out in the, in the industry, that was obviously a very, um, very formative time and a lot of, a lot of those people are still in the bike industry um, right. or haven't gone far. So like we were saying, Keith Bontrager um, and Scott Nickel from Ibis, uh, Ross Schaefer, Paul Sadoff, all those California builders. There's lots of people in the UK who, who also haven't, haven't left, haven't gone far. Rory Hitchens, um, 
and Joe Burr, Adrian Carter from Pace. Uh, there's there's a lot of people that really haven't gone far. It seems that if you find your your sort of niche in the bike industry, I mean, why why go anywhere else really? Right. And we've seen a few people go away and then come back. I think once they find out how much tires cost at retail. They, uh, <laughs> yes. they're like 85 euros <laughs> yeah sure, surely i must know somebody who can do me do me a better price on that so uh i think no one really leaves for good and there there's maybe a few paul turner hasn't hasn't been back since the maverick days but yeah that's right um uh, although i did hear from him recently very good speaking about black and white pictures i pulled up some uh someone um, yeah Yes, I, I have some uh, some slides where uh, uh, coming back to, to to black and white, and you, you mentioned you started you started taking pictures in in school. You said how how did that start? How did you start with photography? Uh, photography, I I took a few pictures at school, and and then I went to college, and I did a, a sort of reasonably low level but wide ranging course on media, and in the sort of mid eighties media meant, you know, printing and, uh, you know, there was one desktop publishing computer in the entire college and we weren't allowed to touch it. So it was traditional sort of printing, photography, uh, writing, marketing, that kind of stuff. And, uh, and I learned black and white photography back then. And then when I, started at I, I started working at future publishing in 94 for mtb pro and mbuk magazines and i would i can remember taking a camera with me on on holiday and i, I got the chance to go and uh have a day with tom ritchie and i took oh, a really? camera, yeah to, took a camera with me ah the bobblehead yeah you, he's here your, your desk must be as untidy as mine um i mean it's full of full of memorabilia um yeah i just i just brought them all up to just to spice up your our conversations oh thank you uh yeah and and i i had a chance with uh of an afternoon riding with tom ritchie and i i took a camera and i i took a uh and, and where was that th- this was at tom's house in oh, nice. in california I was I was on holiday and I I thought oh well you know I can get get to visit Tom Ritchie let's go and do that and I I took some pictures and we had a chat and at the time I'd I'd actually been hired as a technical editor at uh, MTV Pro magazine and uh, and I was like well I've, I've got this chat with Tom Ritchie I could write it up as a story and they said oh yeah do that and and it turned out really well and I was very happy with with how it turned out and that sort of helped me move gradually into more of a feature writer than than being a technical editor and and, and as you you said you just you learned um in your in your media college times uh to deal with photography it was was writing part of it as well or where did this come from yeah right writing i've i've always been interested in writing and um And I did do some some writing, some marketing and advertising writing when I was at college. Uh, I'd originally wanted to be a, an advertising copywriter. That was my okay. sort of dream to go and write snappy things about products. And uh, 
And when I left college in London, where I was hoping to go straight into Saatchi and Saatchi or wherever, I discovered that it's, it's quite hard to get in. And so I became a bike messenger uh, because I'd I'd got a bike to ride into into college got and then got into mountain biking. Um sort of the 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 wrong way around really when when people say who buys a mountain bike magazine and then gets into mountain biking that was me i i thought oh this looks cool bought a copy of mbuk and uh and thought yeah mountain biking yeah and so what 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 was your first mountain bike then do you remember like what my first mountain bike shaped bicycle was was a pro bike macho and it was pink and white and not very good and i broke that reasonably quickly and then i got a pacific cycles bike which uh which was which was pretty good i uh, bought a frame um and swapped some bits over and then as bits and pieces wore out i upgraded them um i coincidentally bought it off clive gosling Who's that? Who, clive gosling who now is marketing for cannondale in the oh. uk and uh he at the time happened to to work in a bike shop in in south london and i bought this uh bought this bike off him what, and, year, what year was it so when, when was your uh, kickoff on that one 89 okay great uh and then i worked as a I went to college and then i got a job as a bike messenger and then i started packing boxes at a company called nti which uh was the importer of uh of super cool bits and pieces there was uh there was evolution that did yeti and chris king and ringlay and there was nti that did rock shocks and salsa bontrager um on the bar ends diacomp uh use components lots and lots of uh of uh cool purple and uh anodized bits and pieces grafton it did so uh yeah there was there was a lot of cool stuff back then and i i had to uh put them all in boxes and post them off to bike shops and then slowly i i ended up uh i don't know uh i originally bumped into the editor of mountain biker international magazine nikki crowther on a train we were on a two-hour train journey and i met her once and uh we we got chatting she said oh you 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 did writing at college you should uh you should write a column for the magazine and so i i wrote a couple of columns and double spaced on an electric typewriter because we only had one computer at work maybe you have to explain to some of the people what an electric typewriter is <laughs> <laughs> it's like a laptop only it's it's also got a printer in it. I mean, in theory, it's it's better, but it doesn't remember anything you type, which isn't very good. Uh, so, so I typed that off, and and I kind of genuinely expected to get it back like a a college uh, college report or something, where you know there'd be red lines on it with you know rewrite this and four out of ten or something, or you know with all the spelling mistakes pointed out. And I now realize as, as an editor that it's far cheap, uh, far um, quicker for you to just fix the mistakes as you're putting it into the magazine. And so the first thing I saw was when it appeared in, in, uh, in print, which I don't know 
it's um, it's probably not just me that's done this where you 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 get something you've written in a magazine you see it in a news agent and you stand there and and read it while you're in the shop and you expect someone to look over your shoulder and go oh did you write that and you go yeah yeah actually i oh. i wrote that and strangely no one no one ever asks you that but uh, it it was a great buzz to to see something in print so so this is this great story. Thank you. So let's jump uh, a little <laughs> forward into into uh, late nineties, beginning of two thousand. You know, like that, where where things started to happen, and and where, from my view, like you know, there was this melting pot of 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 UK media around Bristol. Mm-hmm. How, how did this happen from your point of view? That Bristol became this hotbed for UK cycling magazines. Um, in the, in the sort of mid, well, in the early nineties, no, 93, I guess, MBUK had been launched as a, as a magazine in the, in the late eighties and it got bought by future publishing, which was a, uh, a, a hobby magazine publisher in, in, that was based in, in Bath in the Southwest near Bristol. And so that was where. MBUK was was based, and then they launched other magazines. They launched MTV Pro, right. uh, and just up the up the road, uh, there was Steve Warland lived in Bristol. He was a great mountain bike writer. Just over the um, Welsh border in Monmouth, uh, Dirt Magazine started, right, and um, or they had their office there. And so there was there was a lot of that sort of uh, people moving to the the West country for, uh, to work for these, these magazines, the writing in Bristol's pretty good. It's not super rad, but it's, it's good enough. And a lot of writers would go there because that's where the, the, uh, the magazines were. There was also the, the London based, uh, the guys at MBR right. were, uh, were based there, but, but it, it was very a sort of Southern, um, publishing house thing. Um, what does it mean, uh, southern? Is it the difference between the Bristol and the southern ones? Well, no, just you know, Bristol is in the south, and and then right. you have to go a long way further north to get to like where we are now we're, uh, in Todmorden, which is just north of Manchester uh, in in the north of England. We know that that most like even foreign companies that fly in, they'll fly into Heathrow and they'll go and visit a magazine in London. And then they'll go across and go and visit the, the, you know, MBUK and, uh, and dirt or whatever in down in the, in the South. And then they go home and it was only a rare few would, would make it the three and a half hours further North to come and see us. Um, so we, we always appreciated <laughs> when someone, they, they would come visit us and they would also go and visit, uh, Guy Kesterman as well. Who's, who's up here as well. Yeah. An- another, um, icon Guy Kesterman. Yes, uh, indeed. Still is, um, great, great memories of, uh, of going test riding with him. Even have some scars that, uh, have his name on. Oh, very good. Yes. Just minor stuff, uh, but uh, <laughs> um, no stop. So uh, the one thing I want to I want to uh, um, touch on is that despite all the technology, you've been uh, always uh, very hooked on single speeds, single speed bikes, and events and everything. Where did uh, that passion get started, and, and how did that work out? 
I'd say uh, less these days just because my, my knees are a bit older and, and I okay. live somewhere with some very big hills. But uh, I was kind of instrumental in, in bringing single speeding to the UK. And that really stemmed, that started in about 94, 95. Um, and that came from my um, uh, admiration for Mike Ferentino and everything he wrote. Yeah. Uh, he was a great champion of of single speeds in the US. And I can remember reading uh, an article that he wrote in California Bicyclist, so before even Bike Magazine, in maybe 92 or something, about uh, about single speeds and about how it was a it was a reaction to the overcomplicated three by eight gear systems that had just just been right. introduced from the twenty one speed went to twenty four speed and it was far too complicated and actually you could do ninety percent of of things on a, on a bike with one gear and nothing goes wrong and even if you have to get off and push for some of it then um, then it still makes sense uh, and. I I went to the uh, single speed world in '94, which uh, Bob Seals from Retrotech uh, organised, or, or sort of organised on the back of uh, I think a US Norba race in Big Bear. And at the time, it was uh, uh, I flew in with with a bike, got picked up by Ferentino and Tim Parr from Swobo. We. Nice. We uh, went out for cocktails. Then we got up at five in the morning and drove to to uh, to Mammoth. Slept in the desert. Finished driving to Big Bear the next day. Got there just in time to register for the race. Went went out, drank beer, poached a campsite. Got woken up by a park ranger at four in the morning with a torch in my face, going, "Who's in charge?" <laughs> And I was like, uh, I don't know what's going on. And he was like, right, I'm going to come back for you guys. And uh, so at, uh, at dawn, uh, we all got woken up and we moved to another campsite to see this guy sort of appear to a empty campsite. Anyway, I, I did, did the uh, this first single speed worlds in 94. And there was a particular type of bike rider that was attracted to single speeding in those days, in the in the sort of mid late nineties. How did this bike rider look? Could you personalize him from from your view? There was there was a lot of wool. There was um, there was a lot of beer. Uh, there were some fearsomely fast but unconventional riders, and it kind of felt a bit like the, I guess how the the original mountain bikers may have looked to the road riders of the time. They, there was no sort of, um, uh, reverence for the, the traditions and, uh, of the, of the times. Right. And they were, they were like riding single speeds. If you stop halfway through a race and have a beer, that's okay. Because who's going to remember where you finished in 10 years time. It, you know, the, the, the racing was kind of secondary, but the racing was the reason you were there. And, uh, and I think I've always been a fan of, of racing, even though I'm terrible at it because pre-internet, it would be the, the, the reason why you find yourself in a field in the middle of the Lake District or the, you know, the corner of Germany or Stockholm or wherever. It was because there's, there's a race and just getting there was, was the reason for, for being there. 
So, uh, so the, the single speed races were an excuse for a bunch of friends to get together. There was some bike riding, but it was a weekend of getting together. So there was 48 hours or, or 72 hours of, uh, getting together with friends with bikes and you might be racing for two of them. And really the, uh, the big, the reason for being there was just to be there, see your friends, have a chat, have a beer. And you were there because of bikes, not, not sort of purely, um, to, to do racing. You were there because you were, you were mountain bikers. Um, and I, I kind of brought that, to the UK and I organized the, the first sort of single speed UK champs for a few years. And I organized the single speed world champs in 2001 in Wales. Right. Uh, so it went, I think 95 was the first one in big bear. And then it took a holiday for a few years. And in two, uh, maybe 2000, no 99, it was in Fullerton. 2000 was in Minneapolis and then 2001 was in, uh, was in Wales. So I organized that and we had, I don't know, 300 people turn up to a field in Wales. There was probably a better prize list than I've seen at any other bike race of any other discipline. Oh, really? Like, like um, what, what was it? What prizes did you give up? There, there were, there were bike frames. There was, um, there were, you know, components and, uh, there was a bottle of Jack Daniels for the oh. drunk. Uh, and we, we kind of made up the, the prize categories as we went along. The Jack Daniels went to the drunkest single speeder there <laughs> who obviously didn't need it. Um, who, who appeared, um, there was a, there was a sort of sumo wrestle off for, uh, for the biggest single speeder. There was, yeah, I don't know. It was, there were, there were a fair number of Did, did you guys have also the, the, the Clydesdale class? We, we did. We don't have quite as many um, uh, big lads as they do in, in the U.S. It seems that half the riders in the U.S. are, are sort of six foot four and, and, you know, 200 pounds. And we don't have that sort of Danish, Scandinavian heritage in the U.K., I think. So, uh, so our riders aren't quite more, as... More like the, 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 the Piddock style. Yes, there's there's a few more kind of skinny riders, but uh, skinny ones. We, we have we we have a good selection. Speaking of of Piddock, so how does it feel to the UK cycling community that now you have an Olympic champion, male champion, and a and a world champion female racer? Is that a shock or is it? Um, I think it's it comes as no surprise to any cycling fan in the UK. I mean, Tom Pickock has been racing cyclocross since he was a junior, right. uh, especially around the north where I am. And so he was a regular. Um, the first time I saw him racing was was at a, a national race in um, or a points race in Bradford, not far from here. And he already had a European cyclocross you know, under 16s jersey on when he was racing then. So it hasn't come as a, as a surprise to anyone. And the same with, with Evie Richards. I think I, I literally bumped into her on a ride I was doing with Tracy Mosley, uh, five years ago, um, five, six, six years ago. And she, uh, we were riding, I was riding with Tracy doing a story about the Malvern Hills where she lives and also where Evie Richards lives. And she had literally come from school 
and had got her cycling gear on was was coming out for a bike ride and at the time she wondered why uh you know i wanted to to uh i was like can i get a photo of you just in case you know i need one for my my files later she was like well why do you want to take a photo of me well because you might be a, the next champion she was like oh no and you know i'm just just a bike rider um but even then you know, again, in cyclocross, we saw her ride away with the world junior cyclocross champs. And so I think she's, the, the two of them have always been in everyone's minds if you're a okay. cyclist, but to a non-cyclist, they've appeared from nowhere. Uh, I know that on the, on one of the Olympic programs uh, on TV, uh, an ex-Olympian of some other discipline was amazed that Tom Pickock had won a, won a mountain bike gold because he'd only started mountain biking three months ago. And I don't think she'd appreciated that he'd only come back to mountain biking. He's, you know, he, he is a mountain bike. He's a cyclist. He's an off-road cyclist who also does very well on the road. Uh, but the fact that he'd only recently come off a road team to do mountain biking, um, doesn't mean that he's, he'd only just started mountain biking. So I think, and now like the, the UK media is having to deal with mountain biking. It's like, Oh, we're, uh, we're a world force in mountain biking. We didn't know. Oh, okay. Uh, and, and you see, you see the sort of mainstream media trying to catch up with, okay, so what do I need to know about mountain biking and is it downhill racing? And is it, you know, what, what is Olympic mountain biking? You know, so, so looking at the topographics of, of the UK, right, you would have thought that if, if there's one discipline that the UK will, will go strong, it's, it's cross country, right? Um, I don't know too many hills that have chairlifts or long downhills, but it was definitely the opposite that uh, downhill became the, the sport, right? It was the yeah, Warners and Steve Peets. I, I think we've we've always had a, a very competitive um, downhill scene, and although we don't have the the elevation, and we definitely don't have the the chairlifts, there's only like two sets of chairlifts in the UK that you can get bikes on. Uh, the what we do have is is a lot of sort of short steep hills, and a lot of weather, and I think that that sort of riding in all conditions has really helped British. Um, riders of all disciplines, really. Uh, you know, you look at Danny Hart's uh, Champ World Champs. Right. Uh, those are the kind of conditions that, if you were a, a US rider, you wouldn't ride in. But if you're a UK rider, that's it. Might not stop raining for another month, so you're going out in those conditions, whether you like it or not. Especially if you're training or you're racing in the UK, we don't. We don't cancel races, or we tend not to cancel races if if it's raining or if there's been a lot of rain recently, because when is it going to stop? You don't know. Uh, <laughs> and so I think a lot of the UK uh, riders are really good when the weather isn't good. So in in difficult conditions or in changeable conditions, um, I know that Isla Roundtree, uh, who raced successfully sort of in European cyclocross for many years and is behind Isla Bikes. She uh, 
she was had a full-time job and she realized she was racing against pro european women who whose job it was to to train right and so her theory was to become better technically at all the technical aspects of of cyclocross racing so she learned you know her remounts and dismounts were were as smooth as they could be her riding uh she learned to ride with less tire grip so when when riders were on intermediate tires she would be on file treads and if they were on mud tires she'd be on intermediates because she could ride in bad conditions she knew how to handle a bike and that was a skill that she could learn without needing you know 25 hours a week to train so she could steal those moments when she could find the the spare time to to get better technically on a bike and i think that applies to a lot of the the uk races the uh you know when the when it's wet and muddy and horrible those that's just you know it's not it's not pleasant for anyone but those riders have got all that experience of riding when it all goes a bit sideways uh and then uh and then just the and then riding in the dry is is a lot closer because it comes down to you know everyone's got pretty similar levels of bravery and skills and, and things right. but but i think that riding in adverse conditions is a is a great uh talent that a lot of our riders have speaking about riding so like over those 30 years you've been working as a cycling journalist and traveling what what places have, have been standing out for you for riding experience um i've always been a huge fan of of moab in utah nice. uh that was uh back in i think 1993 i was going to go to um i was had a two-week vacation i was going to go to california for a week and to new york for a week uh because i had some friends there and scott nickel from ibis at the time said well you can't come this close to moab and not go to moab And by this close, he meant, you know, a four hour flight and a five hour drive right. <laughs> just to, just to get to, to it. And, uh, he's, he kind of insisted on it and he got, uh, Bill Groff who, uh, runs room cyclery, uh, uh, which at the time was the, the, the one shop in Moab. Uh, he said, this English guy is going to come and stay with you in your basement. I hope that's okay. You know, Bill's like, uh, okay. And so I, I turned up there late at night. Bill let me stay in his basement for, for three days, gave me some food, let me a, a, a rental bike. And, and I just had a couple of days of Moab and it, it really made a, a huge impression on me. And I've yeah. been back many times since then and, um, really like it just for its, you know, it's, it's completely different to wherever anyone lives and, uh, nowhere looks like Moab. Yeah, um, especially a very, a very special place in riding with the scenery mm -hmm. and the people. Yeah, it's, it, it's a great place. It's so different. Uh, and then in, in sort of Europe, I think, uh, I, I love, uh, the French mountains who, who doesn't, um, Spanish mountains. I've not done enough riding in Italy. Uh, I need to sort that out. Uh, you know, I've done, done some, some riding in Finale and, and, uh, down in Massavecchia, uh, but really not enough riding down, down in that part of the world. 
Um, and then I don't know the, you know, there are other, there's a lot of great places and, and you don't necessarily need altitude or, or scenery. You just need a, a fun riding scene and some wiggly trails. You know, I've, I've done some great riding in Utrecht in the Netherlands, which is about as flat as it gets. I happen to be there and there, there's just a forest full of twisty sandy trails where you can go and turn yourself inside out for about four hours and not ride the same trail twice. And it's great fun. And it, it you know, it doesn't matter that you've not done a four hour climb and a right. hour long descent. Yeah. Sometimes the, th- the simple things make it more fun and easy. Right. And so, uh, in terms of, uh, riding, we said recovered single speed on, on your part. And it feels like we're still, we're still in the nineties. It's kind of hard to get into the two thousands with you. It's going to be um, a very long show. Sorry. Uh, but then how, how then, you know, with all the magazine in the, in the, in the late nineties, did you then, uh, decide to start your own magazine venture? Um, it was because I, so I worked for, a uh, I worked for future publishing and I worked for uh, a magazine called MTV pro, which had several names. It became mountain bike pro. And then eventually it turned into mountain bike world, which was sort of our version of bike magazine of the U S bike magazine. It was, right. you know, beautiful photos, nice, nice writing, big, long rambling stories. Um, but it was, it was at a, a company that didn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily, it, it evolved into what it was and it wasn't strategically launched by the publishers. And so they didn't, they weren't really behind it sort of in terms of the concept, even though the, the readers loved it. Uh, and they were more interested in launching a, a sort of what to buy magazine instead, because that would be a better story for the advertisers and for the, uh, um, and just in terms of sort of picking up new readers, you know, Hey, 28 pairs of gloves tested and things, which, which if you've been working on a, a magazine, that's all about the sort of joy of riding as the sun comes up, you know, then being asked to go and write sort of a 28, glove group test it isn't isn't great um and and so that magazine uh after a, a year they they stopped publishing it and they closed the magazine and uh the way of of doing that in a in a big company so that nobody does anything uh rash is you say right the great issue it's just gone to the printers by the way that was the last one um, okay. you know, you've, you, you're all gonna, we've found different jobs for you to do, uh, which in my case was, uh, we'd like you to edit our learning to drive magazine, uh, which, uh, didn't to drive. yes, no, anyway, moving and, and on. Said, from I, I don't have a driver's license, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, we actually found that they'd, uh, the, this new magazine was going to be launching and they bought all the paper for the printers in, in advance because it's cheaper that way. And then the magazine wasn't going to be ready in time. Uh, so we had a, a, an extra issue. They said, Oh, you know, we said it was closing. You can do it 
you can do another issue because because we're not quite ready with this other magazine. So we had the luxury of of printing the last issue of a magazine where we kn- knew it was the last one. So we reviewed our own bikes. We filled it with quotes about how everyone loved the magazine, and uh, we uh, uh, and wrote spiky editorials about how uh, how you can't expect sort of the businessman in a in a in a big company to understand uh, a magazine dedicated to the soul of, of bike riding. Um, so anyway, so we, we did that and then it closed. And on the back of that, there were, there were a lot of sort of sad readers out there and they, some of them got together in the early days of the internet in, in, you know, 99 and started a, a website called go far MTB, uh, get out for a ride. And it stood for, and that was a sort of chat forum thing based on, on the sort of things we were doing in Mountain Bike World magazine. And after a year or so of this, people said, oh, wouldn't it be great if there was a print magazine version of this? Because, you know, we all like the s- similar kind of things, but there isn't that kind of a magazine there for, for us anymore because it's all about what to buy and not why you ride. And so Mark, one of the, Mark and Sean, the two of the sort of uh, publishers of this website, uh, met me at a, a bike event and said, do you want to, would you like to edit a magazine? Because we, we don't know about magazines. We've got this website and there's quite a few people who are interested in it. They're very keen and everyone wants this sort of mountain bike world style, bike style magazine. And uh, and so we'd like to to do a magazine, and and that was back in the days when websites didn't earn you any money. You you know you couldn't give away adverts on a website because no one had a website to send anyone to. And nobody uh, knew how to make money with it. Yeah, uh, and so so I was like, yeah, okay, let's. Uh, I'll I'll come do that. So I uh, I I was working for a dot com job back then for a bit and i gave that up and we worked on on the first issue of the magazine and the idea was that we would launch the print magazine and the website um relaunch the the website do them both at the same time and the print magazine would do things that print magazines do well like long articles and beautiful photos and the website would do news forum gossip and and that kind of like small bitty stuff that the internet does well. And, uh, and so we launched on April fool's day in, in 2001, uh, we'd, uh, you, you go and see a printer and printers will print whatever you want. Uh, if, if you're, you're a new customer and they go, right, you know, how many pages do you want? You know, we've, we'll just, you know, Here's, here's a sample magazine. Click through that. Oh, doesn't that feel good? Do you, want, do you want a nice big thick cover? Yeah, you can have a big thick cover. Do you, do you want lovely, lovely gloss pages? You can have that. Yeah, no problem. Um, and how many do you want? How many copies do you want? You know, how many pages and how many copies? You're like, oh, uh, let's have a hundred pages and copies. Uh, well, everyone we know knows about this and everyone's excited about it. So let's have 10,000. So they're like, yeah, okay, 10,000, no problem. One thing, you have to pay us 100% up front because you're a new <laughs> customer. And we're like, oh, okay. And so we sold we sold uh, 
500 subscriptions for £10 that was half the print bill. And then we sold some adverts to people uh, some based on a cover of the cover of the magazine and a list of people that probably were going to write for it. And we had a few companies, um, Silverfish and um, uh, Madison people who were like, yeah, okay, we, we, we like the idea. We'll, we'll take a risk, you know, put us down for an advert. Um, Gary Fisher uh, bikes were keen, but didn't have any money. And I said, oh, I, I have one of your test bikes still at my house. How about I sell that? And that pays your <laughs> advert. They were like, yeah, okay, that sounds great. <laughs> so I sold sold that, and that paid for their advert. And so then we printed 10,000 copies of the magazine. We went to a trade show in, in Birmingham, and we sat there with literally a, a room full of magazines. It's, it's a big – it's a two pallets of magazines. Yeah. And we sold 248 <laughs> in, in a in a three day show, so we we sold five hundred subscriptions. So we're like, okay, we've sold seven hundred and fifty, and we've got nine thousand two hundred and fifty uh, to go. And the next issue is due out in in uh, three months, and so we've got to try and sell as many of those as we can and pay for the next issue. And um and had we been great businessmen, we'd have given up straight away. We'd have gone, well, this doesn't make any sense. Let's just put it, write it off as an expensive mistake, uh, apologize to our subscribers and go and do something else, go and work in a coffee shop. But because we had this sort of the misguided um, uh, sort of enthusiasm and uh, and optimism of newcomers, we were like, well, we'll just, you know, let's give it another no, another issue. We'll just see how it goes. So the way you described it, it all sounds pretty simple, right? Bunch of guys, good ideas, enthusiastic uh, printer, right? Lots mm -hmm. of magazines. But then, as you said, you know, there, there is risk. Did, did you feel the risk when you started it? Um, kind of. We, we, it's very easy to get swept along with the, the enthusiasm and, you know, in the same way that you get, um, Uh, elections where it, it's a surprise result because no one you know voted for whoever it was in that won the election. We had the same thing where we were like, but everyone we know knows about this magazine. So surely everyone in the world knows about our magazine. We realized that, of course, you know, we should have done a lot more sort of um, promotions. And, and at the time, every magazine you look at is, is a, is a pound coin of your money. So you can't, it's very hard to give one to someone because you're like, I'm giving you some money because I've paid for this. And so we, we weren't as sort of free and easy in giving out magazines, making sure that everyone had a copy and, and there was a copy on every sort of trail center, uh, coffee table and every bike company had a, had a copy because to us, they, they were, They, they were cash and they were, and we were like, we've, we've got to sell it. Otherwise we've lost loads of money. So, so how, uh, how, how long did it take you to get, uh, get rid of those 9,000 copies? About two years, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe three. <laughs> I think we still got a couple left if we want one. Uh, yeah, I, I would love to, to have one here from my, my memory. From your storage. Yes. If you, if you um, want to get rid of something, something there. And it, It, it took a while and 
and you know our enthusiastic business plans with the with the graph that kind of points up to the sky that took a, a long while to realize and and in the meantime we we didn't want to let down our subscribers that that had um you know put their faith in us and we didn't want to let down the advertisers and we had stories we wanted to tell i think like they say you know everyone has a as a novel uh, you know a book in their bottom drawer that they could write you know they've got this idea for a book um and i think that everyone has a a great uh, magazine of their interests uh, that they could write the first issue isn't a problem it's the the second and the fourth and the twelfth issue where you need to make sure you've got you've got to keep filling up with ideas and making making it interesting you have to keep that momentum up so did you adjust the the, the printing number for the second uh, second edition I, I, uh, slightly we did a, a little less we maybe <laughs> you know edged it down a little bit just because we were running out of room to store them um but we we did eventually sort of work out ways of of you know sending them out as promotions and and trying to get the word out and it it took probably two or three years before uh enough people had heard about the magazine you know going to events going to shows and just kind of trying to spread the word uh but it it kind of slowly got there and we eventually started um being paid something well chips it it seems to have uh, worked out for you you know like you're you're uh, into them and 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 you're never-ending energy endless energy of, of bringing ideas in there for stories um i read somewhere that you even got a, a legend award for for cycling media legend in 2015 yes um that was that was uh that was the cma which isn't the country music awards it's the uh, Cy- cycling media awards and there was a um uh they decided to have a, a legend cycling media legend award which um they hadn't thought to see if i was going to the awards which which i wasn't and mark my business partner was was there and he phoned me up and was like you've just won an award i'm going to have to go and collect it for you because i i uh yeah they didn't think to ask or just check if i was coming <laughs> nobody checked no 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 one checked so uh so and i know letter I that you got then that there was some small printing but yeah, it would be really a good idea if you were at this show. Really good idea. Really good idea. Yeah. Um, but no. But uh, yes. And then I, th- I think randomly the following year, I won Blogger of the Year, which I think was a sort of uh, a, a, a token sort of apology that so I could go and actually walk up and collect something because I was at those awards. Nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, to be fair, uh, the guy who got the award the following year, Tim Manley was, was more deserving of, of the inaugural award because he was the original mountain bike magazine editor. Tim was the editor of MBUK UK and, and really shaped it over its first 15 years, I guess. Um, and certainly a lot of us learnt a lot from Tim um, you know, Seb from Crankt and, and Guy Kestevan and I and Mark and Jamie Hibbard. Ma- many people learned a lot from, from Tim just in terms of understanding, you know, who your magazine is for, who's it aimed at, who are, who are your readers, what is your voice. Uh, and that's something that I try and sort of instill in, in new writers we have is, is, you know, make sure you've got the, 
um, an idea of not just you know the the reader, your your sort of average reader, or your target reader that you're writing for, but also what is your voice? Are you speaking as a a super knowledgeable authority on the subject? Are you um, a peer? Are you just you know it's just you and me in a pub, uh, or is right. it? You know, and we've always said with single track, it's with a knowledgeable friend down the pub. So it's it's an even relationship. When we we never uh, put ourselves as being superior to the the readers, we are just we're average mountain bikers who are very fortunate to be in the position that we are, where we get access to new products and and our um, recommendations and our, our our sort of knowledge comes from just being an average, average rider that who happens to have, have tried these, you know, these great products and um, have a beer. Yes, that's right. And, uh, and, you know, like I've always said that no one thinks that Jeremy Clarkson is a superior car driver. He's, he's probably a pretty average car driver, but he happens to, to, test lots of different nice cars. And so if you wanted an opinion about something, he can tell you because he's tried, you know, a Ferrari versus Lamborghini or, or whatever, in the same way that we we can give our opinions on on bikes that we've ridden from the point of, of being a, a pretty average bike rider with possibly with a, a, a greater knowledge, but actual bike riding I and mean, we don't claim to be sort of superhero bike riders and there are some there are some great journalists especially these days who are fantastic riders um but i do wonder if they're necessarily the right person for their readers you know if you're an amazing nice, bike rider yeah. you can make any bike go quickly um and I mean, true. You can you can test the bike to its limits and and really stress stress things. But but if the and if most of your readers are that kind of rider, then that's great. But if most of your readers are more pedestrian, then they're more interested in how does the bike ride on average trails. And if you're you know if you find climbs really hard, how how does this bike work? Whereas if you're super fit, you can just you can make. You know, we we know great riders who can get on any bike and ride you into the ground because they're just great riders. That's a great point of view. And I, I've heard from from uh, some of the um, suspension technicians actually saying that the 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 top ten racers, uh, whether cross country or, or downhill, aren't always the best product um performance feedback guys guys and, and women because they can get on a bike and they will make it go fast and the people you want to speak to are the are the right um the racers who are 11th to 25th because they're the ones who are going right if i change this this dial on my fork will it get me that two tenths of the of, of a second that i need to get into the top 10 they're the ones who are constantly chasing that that micro advantage whereas the, right. the riders in the top 10 they're all very very similar level and it's it's down to good lines and and a lucky run and consistency and and sort of strength and everything then uh, the equipment is almost secondary there because they they just assume the equipment is is up to the job and 
makes them go quick. Um, but they're not looking for that equipment to be to be dramatically better. Whereas a rider who's got you know twenty seconds to make up on the field, they're looking for that that advantage. Yeah, I, I fully uh, support that uh, thought. Uh, what riders did did impress you in in at the races about their way they approach technology racing courses? Um, there's uh, uh, Nico. I think was Nico right. Rio was was great in terms of he would uh, he would go fast, but he would know how to. Uh, convey that and how to sort of ask for changes to the mechanics in the days when bikes were still pretty rudimentary and um, he would say right not just can you make it more squishy or it's a bit bumpy he would say right i think that the the mid-stroke of the of the suspension curve is is you know and and he would he would actually mean it whereas some people And I know some mechanics who would have a special spanner for adjusting, especially cross-country riders' forks, where they, it, it would do nothing. They'd say, oh, yeah, let me just uh, – okay, you've got three and a half extra clicks of uh, mid mid uh, mid thrust. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, I can definitely feel that. Yeah, okay, you go and, go and win the race tomorrow. Um, but there, there, there was definitely a, a difference between races that, that – um, had that sort of holistic view of bikes and rider and team and tires and everything is all goes into one, one thing that makes a fast race. And then there were some riders that were, were just like, you know, bike or forks or, oh yeah, tires. I should probably check my tire pressures. And, and there were always the riders that would, would do 20 runs with one setup and then they get to the top for their, their race runner, let, you know, three puffs of air out of their front tire, uh, even though they'd had perfect runs for the, the rest of the time. And those were the races that, and, you know, ended up rolling down on a flat front tire because they were like, yeah, this is perfect. But if it was a bit softer, then, then that would be more perfect. And so much for riders, confidence. Yeah. And the riders obviously, um, you know, Tomac and you know, going back, Tomac and and Ned and uh, and riders like that who were just and you know Furtado, um, just joys to watch racing. They they were the the sort of just everything about them. They had the the character, and th and this was when we only got our information from print magazines. We didn't know what they sounded like. We didn't know. We rarely had video of them moving, but you could just see, you know, those, those races where, you know, there's Tomac going flat out. You could just see from a still photo, the, the sort of effort and the attitude that went into those, those kind of riders um, performances. Right. Speaking speaking about uh, video and racing, do, this weekend is last World Cup. Uh, do you do you take the time to to watch Red Bull TV to watch those races? Not very often, no, because okay. quite often they're sort of on a Sunday afternoon, and I want to be riding my bike. Um, I sometimes go back and and rewatch. Yeah, and, and rewatch or I watch the highlights or, or watch the last sort of five races. But um, 
I don't know. I've, I'm I'm not as interested in in the racing as I uh, as I was. Uh, I mean, obviously the the riders are all in, insanely good these days, um, but it's it's so far removed from the kind of riding I do that it's it's good to see, and I'm glad glad they're all doing it. But um, from I I don't find watching a World Cup downhill, especially, I don't watch that and think, right, I have to go out and ride my bike because it's it's just such a different world. So, so speak about riding. What what kind of riding are you doing these days? You mentioned a little bit that you're rolling off some rocks, <laughs> checking landing. But the, what, what bikes are you? You know, when you go for a ride today, what what bikes in your garage do you pick and say, okay, that's. Uh, I would say generally, I've got um, of the bikes I ride mostly. I've got a 130mm trail bike, uh, I've got an Ibis Ripley, and I have a gravel bike. Well, I've got two, a couple of gravel bikes, and and those are the bikes I I ride. I've I've had bigger bikes. Uh, I had a 160, 150 enduro style or, or big trail bike, and I found that I wasn't, uh, when I did ride it, because I didn't ride it very often, because I save it for when I went to the mountains or whatever. I, I wasn't really very good at riding it because I wasn't in practice with, with that bike. Whereas I'd be better right. off riding the bike I ride all the time and go, because I know how it, how it works and how it behaves and what I can ride and how fast I can ride. Uh, and I found that riding one thirty bike, I can ride, you know, pretty much as uh, you know, kind of near the bike's limits, perhaps, um, certainly near my limits. If I ride a bigger bike, I don't go any quicker. Uh, I think because I'm, I'm on the brakes and I've, I've, you know, I've raced, um, there's a, there was a wonderful event, uh, an endurance downhill at Fort William where you had to do as many runs down the World Cup down downhill course without the road cap. Um, as you could in six hours, back up in the gondola, do another run, back up, okay. do another run. And and I borrowed a, a downhill bike for that, and I rode a, a long-travel enduro bike as well. And there were – a friend asked me afterwards and said, oh, you know, you're riding this 8-inch travel orange 322. Did you just, like, let go of the brakes and see how quick it would go? And I said, no, because <laughs> – then you're going into a corner at 30 miles an hour and I don't know how to go around corners at 30 miles an hour. You know, I just launched myself into space. So even though I was on a capable bike and you know, you could let it, and, and there is a natural speed for, for courses like Fort William, where if you go too slow, you just fall into all the holes. So you do have to go a certain speed, but faster than that. And I wasn't interested because it was beyond my comprehension. Uh, you know, I, I didn't know how to react to to things that fast. So, so how many times did you did you make it uh, in the six hours? Did you ride alone or with a team? Uh, no, I did it alone. I did twelve runs. Okay. Um, so with twenty minutes back up in the gondola, maybe in eight to ten minutes a run. Um, and and I was by no means last because. There were some very. I think Ben Cathro did it one year, and he he did two five minute runs at like near World Cup pace, and then hit a tree and had to stop. Uh, so the the secret to that was going 
reasonably fast, but very consistently. So I had no mechanicals. Nice. Uh, would finish, you know, would finish the run, ride straight to the gondola, ready for my for my next run. You eat and drink on the gondola, and then when you get to up to the top, you you ride as fast as you can to the start and just get going. And so it was more about consistency and not dying and not launching self into space. It's still it's a it's a hard course that. I, I, I could, well, I couldn't really stand up for two days. After. I, <laughs> I, I, had to go, I had to go downstairs backwards for two days because my, my thighs were broken. <laughs> Cause you don't realize as a, as a trail rider, you don't, you think, oh, okay, well I have to, I'll do some push ups, but you don't realize that you're just going to be in this sort of power crouch for 10 minutes at a go. And you're going to do that for, for a, you know, 12 runs. Right. It was, uh, yeah. Hey, you, you just mentioned, uh, that you rode an orange bike. Um, so orange, you know, being a UK brand and, uh, and from my view, one very instrumental to, to a lot of the, the MTB image in the Island. So mm -hmm. what, what do you, what, what's your memory or like, what, what, how do you see orange? Uh, I, I'm a, I'm a, Great fan of Orange. They're they're only about twelve miles away from me here, okay. and uh, <clears throat> they were one of the companies I wrote to uh, when I when I first tried to get it into the bike industry to write brochures. So back in 90, uh, 1990, they didn't reply. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, no, I think Orange have always been been very good. They're they're sort of in a Yorkshire style. They're unapologetically from where they are the the bikes are aimed at the riding we have around here it's cold and wet gritty um and it's it's reasonably unforgiving it's uh so the bikes themselves the the single pivot makes a lot of sense because anyone who's had a 12 pivot bearing specialized bike here or, or some other some multi bearing super linkage super amazing high-tech bike uh you ride it for six months through the winter here and you then have to replace 12 bearings because everything's you know it's not just the grit it's the fact that every time you finish your ride you have to hose yourself down hose the bike down and that's the kind of product development that they don't do it, uh, you know, in Californian bike firms. No, I, I guarantee you that no, no product engineer finishes every ride and hoses their bike down every ride, whether it needs it or not, because it's dry and dusty most of the years. So they bikes don't get subjected to that kind of punishment. Whereas, uh, an orange bike, they, they finish their rides, everything gets hosed down and, uh, you might put some, Lube back on the chain of some WD-40, stop it rusting, put the bike in the shed, and then you get it out and you expect the bike to work. And right. it's, the, it's the same with, you know, Hope components. The, uh, it's all designed to be serviceable in terrible conditions because it has to survive that, you know, a, a lot of sort of unintentional neglect where you, you finish a ride. You're not going to spend two hours taking the wheels off and going over with a soft cloth and making sure all the bearing surfaces are all nice and shiny and the, you know, and your chain is completely dry. You just want to get on with the water dispersant spray 
and put it away. So is is there an e-bike in your garage as well? Uh, there isn't. I'm I'm okay. not uh, I'm not anti e-bike. I think think e-bikes are great. I've not found a way in my my sort of day to day life where I find I need one. Um, the the riding around here I do it is mainly sort of there might be. 250 meters of climbing per hill okay. uh you can go out for a for a day and you'll do a thousand meters of climbing uh or 1500 on a on a huge day uh the the climbs are all achievable uh it's not that you've got one enormous climb and then one amazing descent and then you're you're done uh, right. i think it depends on the area if you go like um in Leithen and peebles where the you know, EWS is in a couple of weeks that has bigger hills and, and a lot more choices for descents. You might have to do a 45 minute climb and then you've got a 20 minute, amazing single track descent. And there's a choice of eight of them on that one, you know, from that one climb. Uh, every time I've been there, I, I do this one climb and it takes me 45 minutes and I do one descent and then I might have one more climb left in me for the rest of the day. So I've not done all of those eight descents, you know, in, in five years, I might've done each one once or okay. one of them may, maybe twice. If I lived somewhere like that or somewhere with bigger mountains where it's, it really is an hour or two uphill for a, a, a big descent, then, then I would, uh, definitely see the point in that and and maybe exploring a new area would be great for, for that kind of thing where you borrow an e-bike for for three days work out where all the good trails are and then and then go and do them but personally i i there currently isn't room in my my riding life for one so from what you mentioned though in in uh at our chat at, at eurobike uh, it seems like you're you might be uh heading towards bigger mountains in the near future is, is, is that, uh, maybe then we're <laughs> exploring new areas will, will be, uh, a step yeah, into I, the, I can, I can definitely see that if, the, if you were to go to a new area that where it's unfamiliar terrain and, and you're like, I hear there are 400 trails around here. Let's, let's try and, you know, map them all. It may take you a while if you're, if you're on a push bike. Um, Yeah, I am looking at, uh, due to random coincidences, really, uh, this year, or not coincidences, just sort of events as they've unfolded. Uh, uh, at the beginning of the year, I got uh, got engaged. Then we accidentally sold our house to our next-door neighbor in, in a sort of, we were trying to work out how to afford to insulate our house because it was very very drafty and you would get ice on the inside of the windows in the winter and it really was was quite chilly and so we were looking at maybe selling a bit of the house or or sort of some of the garden or whatever and one of our next door neighbors said um oh we you know we'd be interested in buying some of your garden because we'd like a bigger garden and beata said well why don't you just buy the whole house because you get the whole garden then <laughs> and they said okay Yes, we're interested. So we then nice. had to had to uh, get packed, uh, as I said, work out just how much stuff we had, uh, give away lots of it, throw away some of it, and then try and pack the rest of it into little boxes. Um, 
and and then move. So we've moved across town to my little sort of two bedroom bachelor pad that I used to live in ten years ago, and uh, and then thanks to the fact that uh, my my now wife has a German passport and all of the EU residency joy that that brings which are things we uh, we obviously took for granted a f- only a few years ago. Um, but now we can take take advantage of that. Um, we are looking to maybe move to the um, the mountains in Europe. Uh, Beata would quite like Germany. I, I can't make German work, I'm afraid. It's, I find it, 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 it might be a bit late for me to start trying to learn German. I at least speak terrible schoolboy French. Um, and we've we've spent a lot of time in the French Pyrenees. Uh, my first ever mountain bike holiday was in the French Pyrenees um, in the early nineties, and and I've been back a lot, and uh, uh, we really like it there. So so yeah, I, I'm hopefully going to be looking to uh, to get somewhere in the in the Pyrenees. So yes, we'll we'll see how that goes. And, and is there any time frame to that, or is it? How is it? When do you plan to? Well, it's it's uh, down to the joy of uh, French uh, bureaucracy, which which who knows? But it would be nice to think that by let's say by next spring, spring twenty twenty two, that uh, I'll I'll have a spare room for you in the nice. with a mountain with a mountain view. So we'll we'll see, and then you know that will then be a whole nother world of of, uh, of of starting again and learning stuff i'll still be able to edit single track magazine from there so my my sort of part-time day job will, will still continue but then there'll be a whole language to learn bike riding to, nah. to do trails to learn improve your french definitely yes that needs a lot of improving but you know i'm, I'm deal with french how's it have you thought about like dealing with french beer uh, it, it seems that there's, there's re- very recently, there's a movement towards small breweries in France that are, uh-huh. that are creating some beer with, with, uh, shall we say a bit more flavor. <laughs> uh, so, so I'm, I'm quite hopeful of that. So yes, we'll, we'll see. But, uh, and from, from the, from the many trips that you and I had to, to France, we know that, uh, there are sources in France that, uh, imports flavored beer from other countries there is yes there um going back to uh to our original uh scott launch in the south of france i came across some photos of well apart from the photo of you which i'll uh, i'll save maybe uh tim flukes from rock shocks had it was when the sid rear shock a uh, rear air shock was launched and he had a beautiful cutaway model of a sid fork uh, sorry, of a Sid uh, rear shock, and so the you know the air chamber was was cut away and exposed, and there are photos of us using it as a drinks container for rosé wine, uh, where this beautifully machined, um, uh, very expensive prototype uh, part was being used as a uh, rosé wine schooner. Yeah. Um, so yes, sorry about that, rock shocks, but uh, you know it was. <laughs> happens hey um chips thank you so much for the time um what a wonderful uh chat and 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 walk down the memory lane um 
uh, was a long, long way with many nice <laughs> detours before we got into into two thousand. Yes, um, sorry about that. Yes, no, no, it, well, uh, we awesome. we have a lot like, of uh, uh, we we had a chat, we had a beer, you know, and we talked bikes, even though we didn't ride bikes. Yep. Um, I wish you and your wife the best of of luck for this uh, next exciting stage of your life, and uh, and then looking forward to visiting you guys uh, um, in the Pyrenees. Definitely, okay. I've got some uh, some trails to uh, to explore and, uh, and and some spare bikes to to kind of rack up. So I've got bikes for friends. But yeah, should be but, uh, yeah. should be fun. And, and first of all, you know, like uh, good luck with the the COVID that you get through this. <laughs> Oh yes, I, I I'm pretty sure I'm uh, over it. So I think it was it was just a bad cold that uh, I probably picked up a Eurobike. But uh, yeah, then we'll, um, we'll say hello to your lovely wife Beate, and uh, I I wish you a wonderful uh, nice weekend, and see you soon. Thank you very much. Yes, likewise, and uh, yes, I'll look forward to uh, listening to this and to your uh, next episodes. So cheers. Cheers. Cheers.